I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount that we have been going through over these last several weeks. And we pray, God, that this passage this morning would cause each of us to really reflect and examine our own hearts, examine our own motives for why we do what we do. We pray that by your Spirit, you would illumine us, illumine our minds to understand and give, give us sensitive, soft hearts to receive your word, that we might respond rightly to it so that Christ would be magnified and that we would be strengthened in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've seen um, from chapters 5, 20 to 48, Jesus has been unpacking this greater righteousness in relation to Torah, or in relation to the law of God. And in chapters 5, verse 20, we saw the, the main thesis, or, or Jesus' thematic introduction, so to speak, where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from chapters 5, verse 21, all the way to 47, Jesus provides six examples of this greater righteousness in relation to the law. And we saw that this greater righteousness is, is fundamentally about the heart. It's not sufficient to simply do righteous acts. But your heart must be right before God and your heart must desire to do those things as well. And then in verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus provides this summary or concluding statement of all of what he says in chapter 5. You therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Better translated, be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. That is, let your external acts of righteousness flow from a heart that desires God's will and ways. And now we come to chapter 6. And it's clear that Jesus is still unpacking for us this greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees as the chapter begins with, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In other words, chapter 6 is still Jesus articulating this greater righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But there is a shift in focus in the beginning of chapter 6. Remember, chapter 5 focused on this greater righteousness in relation to the law. Chapter 6, however, focuses on this greater righteousness in relation to piety or devotion towards God. And just like in chapter 5, he he makes these thesis statements of his or his thematic introduction, and then he provides six examples. And here in chapter 6, Jesus does something similar. He makes his thesis statement or this thematic introduction in in chapter 6, verse 1, and then he provides three examples to make his point. And within each example, there is both a prohibition, something you ought not to do, and the positive alternative, alternative, or the command, the thing you ought to do. And his three examples are almsgiving, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And this morning, we're going to be simply looking at the first two in verses 1 to 6. So the first thing we need to look at is this thematic introduction which Jesus gives in verse 1. And the thematic introduction is a serious warning. You see that with the word beware. And really what Jesus is saying is this, beware of living righteously for the applause and approval of men. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, as I've already mentioned, Jesus has been articulating this greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so when Jesus speaks about not practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, who is he alluding to? Well, he's alluding to the scribes and the Pharisees, suggesting that this is what they do. And so Jesus is saying to his followers, if you want to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, then beware. Beware of practicing such righteousness in order to be seen. Now, a few things need to be said here. One, for the sake of reminder, I think it's important for us to remember what Jesus means by the word righteousness, how the word is being used in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you remember from the first week, I used uh, Jonathan Pennington's definition, which I think captures so accurately uh, the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of here. This is what, how Pennington defines it. Righteousness is whole person behavior. Whole person behavior. That is, it's not just external, but it's also internal. Whole person behavior that accords, that aligns with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. 
So it, it aligns with God's nature, who he is. It also aligns with God's will, what his purpose is, what his moral will is. And then on top of that, his coming kingdom, what his kingdom is like. The righteous person is the whole person who does not only do the will of God externally, but most importantly, from the heart. Now remember, we've seen the emphasis that Jesus places on the heart. It's not just about your external behavior. It's about whether or not your heart is in a proper disposition to God and his ways. The Pharisees obeyed the law externally, but their hearts were far from God. And so when Jesus speaks of this righteousness, he's speaking in reference to whole person behavior where both the external and the internal matter. Also, we need to see here that Jesus isn't condemning practicing your righteousness before other people. For one, Jesus practiced his righteousness before other people. Also, if Jesus were condemning practicing your righteousness publicly, he would then be contradicting what he taught in chapters 5, verse 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says here, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Sounds like a contradiction. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is addressing heart motive. In chapter 5, the motive for being light and wanting people to see your good's work, good works is so that they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. But here in chapter 6, the motive for wanting people to see your righteousness is for the praise of self. In other words, Jesus isn't condemning practicing your righteousness publicly. He's condemning the reason for why you practice your righteousness publicly. If the reason you practice your righteousness publicly is for the sole purpose of being seen by others, Jesus says, beware, beware. Once again, Jesus is getting to the intentions of, of the heart. And if the motive of your heart in practicing righteousness is to be seen by others, then hear this. Beware. Beware. And here's why you ought to beware. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If what motivates you in your practice of righteousness is to be seen by others, there will be no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is similar language to that of chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So on the one hand, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, and there will be no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I think in some ways Jesus is conveying the same idea or at least two ideas that are deeply interconnected. Now we're going to come back to this idea of reward later in the sermon, 
because reward is really the major theme in Matthew 6. So here we see Jesus' thematic introduction, or his thesis, so to speak. He gives a severe warning about practicing your righteousness with the purpose of being seen by others. And then what he does next is illustrate or provide examples to convey what he means. He uses two examples in verses 2 to 6, that of almsgiving and that of prayer. And in both these examples, he provides the prohibition, right, something you ought not do, and the positive alternative, something you should do. And then he speaks of reward for both. There's reward for the thing that you ought not do, and there's reward for the thing you ought to do. Now, we're going to look at both examples together because they're, they're parallel, and Jesus uses the same argumentation for both. So the first example is that of almsgiving, giving to the needy. And he begins with the prohibition. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Now, it's important to see this. Jesus is not commanding that you give to the needy. He's assuming that you will. If you're a follower of Jesus, then it's assumed that you in some capacity will care for the needy. This isn't about giving to your local church. There are other scriptures that speak to that. This is about you seeing a person in need, whether it be a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, a neighbor, or even a stranger, and you decide to meet that need in some capacity. And Jesus says, when you do this, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. In other words, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. When they see a person in need, before they give to them, they need to make it a public festival. And here's why. They live for the praise of others. They crave the affirmation, the attention and adoration of man. It's what drives them. If we were to translate this in our modern context, it would be something like this. When you give to the needy, don't post something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram about what you're going to do. Don't take a photo with the person you helped to show all the world the kind act of devotion you've done in order to get a few more likes and for people to think well of you. Don't post something on social media so that people think you really care about this so-called justice issue. When after that post, you're not going to do anything else about it. That's living for the affirmation and praise of men. That's practicing a righteousness to be seen by others. Now Jesus says a very similar thing also in regards to the second example about prayer. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So same thing, right? Jesus assumes we will pray. If you're a follower of Jesus, he assumes you're going to pray. But he warns us against praying with the sole purpose of being seen by others. Don't give to the needy in order to be praised by others. And don't pray in order to be seen by others. Again, 
Jesus isn't condemning public prayers. He's not condemning us for having a pastoral prayer. But if Jim or I on Sunday morning prayed with the ultimate desire to be seen, we should beware. Now I want you to notice in both examples, he alludes to the hypocrites. Now of course we know in the context, Jesus is alluding to the scribes and the Pharisees when he says, don't be like the hypocrites. But I want us to see the way in which he is using the word hypocrite. Most of us, when we think of the word hypocrite, we usually think of hypocrisy as you claim to believe this thing, but you then live contrary to that belief. So an an obvious example would be uh, you claim adultery is immoral, but you then commit adultery. And so you're, you're living contrary to what you claim to believe. That can be a hypocrisy. But I also would suggest that that's not the way that Jesus is using it here. You see, if someone were intentionally claiming that adultery was wrong while secretly having adulterous relationships without any kind of repentance, I would call that hypocrisy. But if someone who really believes adultery is wrong but ends up committing adultery but is repentant and comes clean, I wouldn't call that hypocrisy. I would call that inconsistent which we are all in some capacity. None of us live in such a way in which we're completely consistent with what we believe. That's why you confess your sins here every Sunday morning. But here, Jesus isn't using hypocrisy in that way. You you believe this, but you live contrary to it. Rather, Jesus is describing hypocrisy as externally doing the right thing. But internally, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. That's hypocrisy. In other words, if I get up and preach God's word, I'm doing the right thing. Preaching is a good thing. But if I get up to preach with a desire fundamentally to be seen and praised by others, rather than I want to honor God, then Jesus would look at me and say, you Hypocrite. And that's what Jesus warns against when he says in verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites. You see, Jesus is forcing us to ask some serious questions of ourselves. Like, why do I do the things I do? What's the motive for the things that I do? Why do I post things on social media? Why do I go to church? Why do I give up my money to different initiatives? It requires us to examine our motives. So Jesus gives us the prohibition in both verse 2 and verse 5 in giving to the needy don't make a public spectacle to be praised by others. And in praying, don't be praying to God in order to be seen by others. And then in both cases, he describes that the people who do this have received their reward. Right? Verse 2, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
What is Jesus referring to? What reward have they received? Well, the answer is quite simple. They've received the very thing they wanted to receive, which was the praise and admiration of man. But this is a heart-wrenching statement that Jesus is making because he's implying that the reward they've received is utterly empty and shallow and temporal. And because they have lived for this reward, the praise of man, they will not receive any heavenly reward from God, which is the exact opposite of shallow, temporal, and fleeting. You see, Jesus is implying that human praise is fleeting, temporal, fickle, and earthly, just as earthly treasure is fleeting and temporal, where he summarized this whole section in verses 19 to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do not lay up for yourselves the praises of man that will last but a short time. But rather lay up for yourselves the praises of God who will reward you with everlasting eternal reward. My dad has pastored for over 40 years, and he has told me on different occasions, the people who one time praised you and admired you could one day easily be the people who will one day criticize and attack you the most. And we see that. We see that in Hollywood, with musicians. At one moment, there are people literally bowing before them as if they're worshiping this singer, And the next, they are mocking and destroying them. Human praise is fickle. And if you're living for it, Jesus is saying, you've got your reward, but I pity you. I pity you. Jesus knew this all too well. The very people who cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were the same people a week later crying out, away with him, crucify him. Living for the praise of men is a fool's errand. In the end, it will leave you absolutely with nothing. Not only that, it will make you a slave to others. And so here we see the two prohibitions and the reward they receive. They receive the very thing they sought for, but it will not endure. And as you can see, Jesus is once again getting to the heart, demanding that we look at our hearts and see what our motives are. So he provides these two prohibitions and the reward that follows But he also provides us with the positive alternative or the thing we should do and the reward we'll receive if we do so. We see the two things we should do in verses 3 and 6. Look first at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. That is, give in such a way that you're not drawing attention to yourself. You see, Jesus isn't speaking literally here, but he's using hyperbolic language to capture his point. 
If you want to keep yourself from giving to the needy for the wrong reasons, then commit yourself to give in such a way that you're not trying to have people notice what you're doing. Now, this doesn't mean that when you give to someone personally, that somehow you should always hide the fact that you've given to them. There is a place for that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, that it must always be like that. Rather, it's when you see a person in need and you desire to meet that need, you intentionally avoid making a public spectacle of it to prevent others from finding out. And here's why. Because you're not living to receive the praise and affirmation from others. You're devoted to honoring God and pleasing God with your life and you want God to be glorified and therefore it's no big deal if people don't recognize all the things you do. And and that's why he emphasizes this language of secrecy. So that your giving may be in secret. You see the same idea in verse 6 when it comes to the example of prayer. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. You see, true devotion to Jesus means it really doesn't matter whether or not people see your acts of devotion. You live for the audience of one. This is why Bonhoeffer spoke of the idea that true faith True faith is secret. True faith is secret. Think about this. The things that are most precious to us are often the things only a few people know of. The secrecy of the thing reveals the value we have towards that thing. And I think that's partly true in relation to God. The preciousness of God and our relationship to Him means there's an element of secrecy in the same way that the preciousness of my relationship with Gracie demands a level of secrecy. True faith has an element of secrecy because it desires the applause of one. See, this is the greater righteousness that Jesus speaks of in chapter 5 and continues to articulate here in chapter 6. And it's about the heart. It's not enough to simply give to the poor and to be a person of prayer. It's important to ask why you give and why you pray. And the ways in which you give to the poor and the ways in which you pray can reveal in some capacity what the state of your devotion to the Lord truly is. You see, if all the things you do spiritually speaking are always public, it's probably good evidence that you're not all that devoted to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Why were the Pharisees so obsessed with external obedience to the law? Because they were obsessed with the adoration of man, for man can only see and adore the external. But the one who is truly devoted to God is obsessed with the internal because she knows that God sees the heart. And she wants her heart to be right with God, not just her external behavior. The one who is truly devoted to God is the one who prays Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, Lord, I want you to search my inner thoughts that no one else has access to. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. This is what Jesus is concerned with. And this is why he exhorts us to practice our righteousness in secret. Now, just as there is a certain kind of reward for those who live for the applause of men, Jesus also promises a certain kind of reward for those who live for the applause of God. And we see this both in verse 4 and verse 6. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you live for the fleeting praise of others, your reward will be, fleeting, will be the fleeting praise of others. If you live for God, then your reward will be the eternal blessings of your heavenly Father that are unfathomable to the human mind. Now, there are several things we need to say about this idea of reward from God. I think the idea of reward in the Scriptures, but specifically here in the Sermon on the Mount, makes us, as evangelical Protestants, uncomfortable. Partly because it's hard for us to reconcile this idea of reward with that of salvation by grace through faith. And so we, we either downplay this idea of reward or we often neglect it. And I think it has done us a major disservice. And here's why. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is trying to motivate us with reward. Specifically reward from our Heavenly Father. And he doesn't shy away or seem embarrassed about it at all. In fact, chapter 6 references the idea of reward ten times. See, to believe that you are saved by grace through the sheer mercy of God is not incompatible with God will reward you as his child for your faithfulness to him. It's not incompatible. And when we downplay this idea of reward from our Heavenly Father, we ultimately will strip us from the God-designed motivation for us to be faithful. Not only that, we often downplay this idea of reward being a motivation for faithfulness because we tend to think that it's inherently selfish. We've bought into this false idea of altruism, thanks to Kant. That if there's any benefit to yourself, then it can't truly be the moral good. But Christianity rejects such a notion. Listen to how Pennington puts it. In our post-Kantian understanding, we not only have lost virtue and wisdom as the focal point and telos of ethics, we have also become skittish about the promise of reward, especially in the Protestant tradition. But all throughout the scriptures, there is the constant offer of reward, recompense even, for orienting oneself toward God. Reward is all, ultimately, a grace gift from God, as the New Testament emphasizes. 
but it is still reward from God for wholehearted righteousness. The scriptures are not altruistic. Well done is a statement appropriate for a king to say to a servant or a son. You see, all humans, all humans are motivated in some capacity by the promise of future reward. It's amazing how much Inez will eat her dinner when she knows there's dessert. That's how God wired us and made us. As Pennington says, desiring a reward is nothing to be ashamed of or any, dimin- or any diminishing of virtue. It is God's built-in motivation for the difficult life that wholehearted, God-centered virtue requires. I mean, even Jesus was motivated by reward. And none of us are holier than him. Hebrews 12, 1-2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus endure the cross? There was something that he was looking at beyond the cross. This joy that was set before him. The eternal reward where God would sit him at his right hand as the rightful king of the universe. That was the reward and it enabled Jesus to endure the cross. Jesus was motivated by reward. C.S. Lewis in his famous essay, The weight of glory, I think it's one of the best things ever written, speaks about this fear of reward that has crept into our Christian thinking that finds its root not in Christianity, but in Kant's thinking and also Stoic thought. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading this this small section here because he captures it so well. If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues... 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if, you asked, but if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence, our abstinence and not their happiness was the most important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider, listen to this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know what Lewis is saying? Our problem is that our desire for reward is too finite. We are satisfied with the praise of man rather than being being satisfied with the eternal rewards that God gives to his children. See, Jesus is motivating us with eternal reward from God and therefore we ought not be embarrassed about that. In fact, I would truly confess to you that part of my lack of motivation in becoming the holiest person I can become has been due to, to a downplaying of this idea of reward from our Heavenly Father. And so hear this from me. God will reward you with eternal abundance. What it all is, I don't know, but it will be unbelievable. He will reward you with eternal abundance and therefore be devoted to God with all your heart, Christian. And if that makes you uncomfortable, your issue isn't with me, but with Jesus himself. The other thing I want us to see about this heavenly reward is that in this context, God rewards us not as our master, but as our heavenly father. See, a master can reward a servant, but find no pleasure in it. But a good father delights in rewarding a son or a daughter. There are very few things that bring me more joy than when I get to reward my little girl. Our heavenly father delights to reward us, and he rewards his children in abundance. He isn't stingy. He gives And he gives and he gives. He's unashamed about it. As Pennington says, God is not shy to reveal himself as a reward offering being. He offers staggering and sure rewards that are treasures from himself. This is who our God is. And this is why we can pursue virtue apart from the need for the praise of men and honor of society. Because we have a heavenly father who sees in secret. And though no one else may ever reward us or praise us for our faithfulness, our heavenly father will. And so here's what's set before us. We can live for the fleeting, temporal, fickle praise and affirmation of this world. Or we can live for the eternal, imperishable praise and reward of our heavenly father. Which one will you choose? May God help each of us live for the praise and reward of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for having desires that are too weak. And being satisfied with that which is temporal and fleeting and fickle like the praise of man.
And I pray that you would deepen our desires to long for the eternal rewards that you give as a good, loving, abundant, kind Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be devoted to you, not to the things of this world, to desire your affirmation, not the affirmation of man, to seek your approval, not the approval of man, and to live our faith in secret, because you are the God who sees in secret and rewards accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.